need an idea? You might rock the joint. But better yet, here's what's the point. I have a wonderful guest on today, a gentleman that I've known for a number of years, who I have a lot of respect for, who I, I think you're going to enjoy hearing about and, and what he's doing and, and his thoughts. And I'll be important because, you know, we have money go through our hands every day. We have money in different buckets in our lives. We are responsible for other people's money, but I don't think any of us take the time we need to understand it and how it works and what could happen to it. Ron Sears is who I'm talking to today. He's a chief investment officer of GlidePath Wealth Management, the president of Age Sage Robo, a great co-host of a really great podcast, The Baby Boomer Investing Show. Don't, if you're not a baby boomer, fail to tune in. It's for you too. If you're not a baby boomer, it's definitely for baby boomers. You know, what's wonderful about this podcast is that it gives us zero excuses for not knowing what's going on. I have uh, Ron's podcast on my list. I have Michael Covell on my list. I have a couple of people on my list. I listen to these people because they're talking to the best and the brightest, not the people that are in the mainstream media, the people that are actually doing things, making change, living in Singapore, living in other places and seeing how the rest of the world operates. So we're going to talk about what you can do right here as an American. Ron, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. This is uh, this is fun. So we've known each other for, what, 30 years now? Does that seem right to you? A little bit of a stretch, but very close, maybe. <laughs> yeah, long time. And, yeah. and you haven't aged a bit. You're like uh, Dick Clark. <laughs> and you, and you, and yeah. you. So let's, you know, talk to me a little bit about your, your background and how you came to, to be working on these these three interwoven businesses. Yeah. Well, I've been a serial entrepreneur and education wise, I, I have two masters, one, one in applied math and, and one in finance, finance from the University of Chicago, the math from the University of Illinois. So I've, I've done a variety pack of things, but uh, it's led me currently to focusing on just one thing. So even though I, I'm touching a lot of different things, glide path and, and baby boomers, I started to get involved with this concept called target date funds. And, and that happened in 2007. And I spent much of my career in a firm called AG Becker, which was the premier pension consulting firm in the country in its day, a set of investment policy asset allocation work. And so I got calls from people 2006, 2007, friends saying, this thing is coming up, it's called a target date fund, and it's gonna be a big deal, and it's right up your alley. So I, I learned about target date funds, and what happened is in 2006, the Pension Protection Act identified three qualified default investment alternatives for 401k plans. And one of them was a target date fund, the other two are a managed account or a balanced fund, so what happened in the 401k plans is an interesting history. At first, plan participants would not sign on. So the participation rate was really, really low. And behavioral scientists said to plan sponsors, you know, if instead of making it an option, you just made it automatic. So when somebody joined your firm, hey, they got a 401k plan. 
And if you uh, told them they could opt out, you know, they're not obligated to stay in, you're going to find that they don't opt out. And the behavioral scientists were right. So participant participation in 401k plans skyrocketed. But then that created a, a new problem. And the problem was basically it's turned out more than half of the people in 401k plans don't know how to invest. So they've got this money that then so they basically threw it on, on the employer. The money had to go somewhere. So employers were pretty much just putting it in cash. They wanted to be very safe. And the protection, the uh, Pension Protection Act of 2006 took cash off the table, which is really interesting. So it is not what is called a qualified default investment alternative. And I think what happened there was the powers that be wanted to get money. <laughs> and they weren't making money on cash. So they pr pr persuaded the legislature to take the cash off the table. And the rationalization there was it's too safe for young people. Young people really need to, you know, jump into the market and get those great returns that we all know are going to happen. So those are the three. The one that's become the most talk, popular. But, but, but to point out why you're, before we get too far away from this point, to make it a non-qualified plan changes it and the benefits for the beneficiaries of the plan. Yeah, so and, and the, the tax qualification off. too. Yeah. So right. it, it was, it's, it's basically a safe harbor, but what's really going on there is this, it's a little, well, it's, it's a lot crazy. Many believe that any safe harbor will do. So they don't, they can choose any, they can throw darts at the Qualified Default Investment Alternative Dartboard. And that's just not true because there is a fiduciary responsibility of care. And even coming down to the most popular choice being target date funds, $3 trillion in target date funds now. It has just turned out that the target date fund industry is an oligopoly now. And, and the reason for that is that the oligopoly is Vanguard, Fidelity, and T. Rowe Price. And the reason for that is when the act passed, most plan sponsors found it expedient to just use their, their bundled service provider. And Vanguard, T. Rowe, and Fidelity are the, big, the world's biggest uh, bundled service provider. I have been crusading, so I'm not going to come to, to what I'm doing. I designed a target date fund just out of scratch. I didn't know what everybody else was doing. But it, it seemed to me that, so the idea of a target date fund is, is you take a fair amount of risk for young people. And then as they get close to retirement, you pull back and protect those assets because they're gonna become dear. And retirement researchers have, have found this, they, they write a lot about this. They, they call it the risk zone. And you mentioned people who don't, don't look. Most people don't look. But there is this well-documented time in everyone's life the five to 10 years before and after retirement, when if they were, they get a bad luck of the draw, they're unlucky and the, the, they lose money, that can easily change the rest of their lives, even if the market comes back. And in particular, for baby boomers, we have had the Great Depression lasted 10 years. And many baby boomers won't have the luxury of that recovery time, and they'll be spending their money in the meantime so the, the idea of the risk zone is well-documented. It's caused by what's called sequence of return risk. And the sequence of return risk in, in, in simple terms means you don't care too much when you lose money if you don't have much money. So when you're 20 years old and you got a dollar in the bank, if you lose half of that, you're gonna make that up pretty quick in your, 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 your employment. But when you save a million dollars, $2 million and use half of that, 
that is life altering. And that's called sequence of return risk. So, so the objective of the, the target date fund, though, as I understand it, was to create a, you know, I think everybody has an idea. And you see all the ads on TV that, oh, if you, you know, Fisher says, if you've got half a million dollars, well, that's nice. I always am reminded of, I've forgotten who said it first, but he said, I figured out, I think it was Steve Martin who said it first. I figured out how to make a million dollars on Wall Street. Yeah, that's a good guess. First of all, you start with $2 million, right? <laughs> oh, I heard a different version of that, but yeah, that's good. Sure. And, and the part, I, second so, part of that is don't pay taxes. Yeah. <laughs> and so... So they so the, but the target date fund sets to sets an objective, as I understand it, literally a target date by which you need to have such and such assets. And so it brings a different level of discipline, a higher level of discipline to the investment period, whether it's 20 years or 30 years or 15 years or what have you. Do I have that right? You, you do. And the objective, I think, is critical. And, and that's what's really happened. In, in the way these services are being provided. I, I view that the objective is to get the participant safely to the target date with all of his savings intact. Don't lose his money. And that should be the objective. But, and, and now I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you where we are right now and, and, and why the objectives matter a lot. The oligopoly, the typical target date fund is 55% in equities at the target date which doesn't sound too bad, but the other, most of the remainder of the assets, 35% of the assets are currently in long-term bonds. So bottom line, 90% in, in risky assets at the target date. Target date funds for people near retirement lost more than 30% in 2008, but that's all been forgotten because hey, the last 13 years have been phenomenal. My design ends no more than 20% risky assets at the target date. Very, very conservative. And you might say, well, that, that serves is crazy. I mean, you can't live on, on that amount of, of risk because you know the safe assets aren't paying anything. I re-risk once you're beyond the, the uh, risk zone. So once you're in retirement five to 10 years, if you're still in my target date fund, I re-risk. And I'll say this too, Congress in May of this year, two, two congressional chairs, amazingly required a study of target date funds. They, they uh, notified the Government Accountability Office in a letter, it's a public letter, and they say, tell us why these target date funds are so risky while the Federal Thrift Savings Plan, the largest savings plan in the world, $800 billion, basically takes no risk at the target date in their target date fund. And that, I think, I really hope that this congressional inquiry really lights up the screens and people start going, whoa, you mean you mean when I'm gonna retire, I'm 90% risky assets? I didn't know that. Most people don't. And even further to that, you, you mentioned, what, what I'm doing now is, is trying to reach out, not just to target date fund people, but to, to my fellow baby boomers, hence the uh, baby boomer investing show. But, but I talk to my friends and I'm, I'm concerned about them. And I'm concerned about you know, what's going on in the economy, and, and I think we're going to get a major correction. And, and I encourage them to watch the show. But just about every one of them says, I have an advisor, and he's really smart, and I'm making a lot of money. They <laughs> say, so how are you invested? You know, how, much do you, how much do you have in equities, and what, what are you doing? I don't know, but I've got a really smart advisor. 
<laughs> so no trust but verify is 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 i think really critical so, but i think that you know don't you think that most people haven't been given the even the rudimentary understanding of how finance works and finance is not so much i'm going to make a decision here i have to, we always have to make assumptions talking about economics i'm not right. talking about the price of bread I'm talking about concepts like the time value of money, sure. Uh, the internal rate of return on an investment. These are things that most people don't know about, don't think about, and probably don't need to know about in detail. But they need to right. understand that it's not simple math when you're talking about time, investments over time. It becomes more complex, and it's a not bit. a matter of being a good stock picker. Who's a good stock picker? But yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. Now that that is, I'm trying to keep the message simple, but you're right. The internal rate of return really amounts to: do you do better or worse when you've got more money? And at this time in your life, when you're moving out out of your working life and into retirement, that's probably as much money as you're going to have. So the, the internal rate of return is really impacted by what happens during that time. And that I've actually thought of an analogy. I was encouraged to, to think of this analogy, but I'll share it with you. So there's there's good reason to think that what you want to do when you leave the workforce is to buy an annuity. And I think you can take the, the view that what you're really doing is passing the baton from your, your 401k plan to an annuity provider. If you drop that baton, basically take a loss during that transition period, game's over. So this is a, a very serious. You need to start at least level to up in an annuity. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I'm familiar. You know, some of the annuities now are actually producing very well for the same reason that you said. They're indexed annuities. You're saying they're performing really well right now. It doesn't discount the need to understand that you can't make a loss in that whether it's fees or five percent penalty for example mm -hmm. these are the things that can hurt is that what you're saying it's that but it's also even more uh, it's where you start so when you first buy that annuity that is going to affect all the rest of the term the rest of your your annuity term so the initial purchase values is critical so if you save, you know, two million dollars, I may rely on the two million too much, but and and you you're just leaving the workforce and and you're going to buy that annuity and you get the market shock and that the market can go down really fast. Now now the amount of annuity payments that you're going to receive forever is is dramatically reduced by by whatever the amount of, that you lost in the stock market. It's just it's, you know that simple. I've heard another analogy where, you know, you just got married. And uh, you've saved and saved and saved for a house. And uh, now you've, you've, you've finally got the down payment. You probably would not put that down payment money at a lot of risk. You would probably be very protective of it just because you want that house. So this, this whole notion is pretty intuitive, but not very well understood. But it also is, it's contingent on, I, I go, you know, you're getting me really to rethink about assumptions that we make. And I, I, you're 
had me remember, I, I have a friend named Bill Saki and when I was still living in New York and we were having lunch and he was really irritated about something. And I said, what's going on? Great guy. And I said, he, he was getting to be, I guess he was 69 or 70 at the time and a uh, very youthful guy and all that. I said, what's wrong? He said, I was just talking to this young financial advisor and this kid says to me, but this is a great investment in 15 years. And he, <laughs> that's that that is so much on on cue because the you know stocks for the long run and all that is probably true but baby boomers long run is different than a kid's long run so it, it all dovetails and i mean this, this message i'm trying to get through to my you know the fellow baby boomers is you 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 at least need to look the employee benefit research institute ebri publishes this study and it reports on asset allocation for, for retirement savings. And this is shocking. It's going to really, I, I hope it shocks you. So 20-year-olds are 60% equities and 40% in bonds. 40-year-olds are 60-40. 70-year-olds are 60-40. 90-year-olds are 60-40. The 60-40 rule has become so entrenched that you know, we had a whole episode of the Baby Boomer Investing Show about why that is. And there's a history of investment consulting. And all, all consultants use models. And the model in the middle is 60-40. And there's this, this tendency, if you don't know where to go, you go to the middle. So 60-40 is... It gets, it gets worse than that. I, it's another, you're, you're bringing up all these true stories I'm remembering now. Again, in New York, I was called to be on a panel. It was the time of IMI and Investment Management Institute. And they said, oh, be on yeah. a panel. I said, great. And it was a time when the 60-40 model was very in vogue. And, and they, the mic came to me and I said, today it's 60-40. Tomorrow it'll be 70-30. Maybe it'll be 80-20 one day. And it was essentially my big comment. Yeah. At the end of this meeting, I had all these guys handing me their business cards like I was a freaking genius. And I thought, <laughs> you know, you guys, you know, the yeah. problem is you have the education, you're not using it, you're not thinking, you're trying to just create an envelope of a solution for everybody. Yeah, that's that's really what's going on here. Coming back to target date funds, it's, it's close to 60-40, it's 55-35. It's very, very risky. So the, the, the world of, of I'm concerned about older people. I, I, I care about younger people too. They, I think I think we're going to have a serious correction here and they're going to get hurt. But I, I think they're resilient enough to come out of it. But I, I can just, 78 million baby boomers control $60 trillion. Can you imagine the shock? So when it happened in 2008, baby boomers were not in the risk zone. They were, they were still too young to be in the risk zone. And there's only $200 billion in target date funds. Now there are 78 million people who are going to spend much of this decade in this five to 10 year risk zone. And there's $3 trillion in, in target date funds. So this is just a disaster waiting to happen. And I, I appreciate you having me on the show because I can't, I can't scream loud enough to, to get people to listen. That's, that's why I wrote the book. Thanks for mentioning the book, but people who to see the show and really want to learn what I did in the book is I laced it with videos. Yeah, tell me, say, say the name of the book again and I'll post it too. Okay, great. It's the baby boomer. I'm sorry, baby boomer investing in the perilous decade of the 2020s. 
And I do think this is a perilous decade. Uh, but you know, we have the show, and it's a video show. So it's not it's it's not a podcast per se. It's just live streaming video. But every chapter of the book has at least two videos at the end. So you really need to, to buy the Kindle. You don't want to buy the printed book because you can't launch the, the videos. Uh, and the Kindle, by the way, is $9, so it's like free. But Your solution to the target date funds is to, is to reconfigure them. and, and, and or, Not that the target date funds are bad, if I get you right, but that they're not configured properly. They're configured think, using old metrics. I, I sh Shame on these you know, the highly regarded firms for doing what they did. And, and one of the articles I wrote is who should design a target date fund. And if you're a fund manager, your business is not managing money, it's making money, right? You want to get paid. So if, if I was working for Vanguard or Fidelity, I, I would design a target date fund like this. I would want to follow the rules, which is you know, reducing risk through time. But I would want to, at the target date, get paid as much as I can because that's where all the assets are. Young people don't have much. So at the target date, I'm, I'm going to take, and I get paid more for taking risk, which I should. You know, taking risk is a serious thing. So I'm going to go with the 60-40. So at the target date, I'm going to be 60-40. And then what that means is I can back out from there. For, for younger people, I'll go 100%. So from 100% down to 60, I'm following the rules of reducing risk. But I've designed this thing not to do what's best for the participant. I've designed it to make the most profit I can. If you, I design the target date fund pursuant to the research of people who think about what's best for people as they near retirement, Wade Fowle, Michael Kissies, there's a whole litany of people who write a lot about this. They universally have identified this risk zone and very much advocate safety in the five to 10 years before and after retirement. So and that's what your fund and that's what your your idea. That's that's the the point that's that what I do. Yeah. That's what I do. Yeah. Tell me how you I'm gonna say this in a funny way because I know you. Tell me okay. how you failed to be a normal financial guy <laughs> in your career. And you know, AG Becker, you could have stayed and been a you know, a broker, been a manager, consultant. What happened that, that put you yeah. off on the, the truth? It's, it's a fun story. So I, I left Becker to start a firm in Chicago called Becker Burke. And we started that in late 80s. And that to be a personal thing. My, my mother passed away around then. She was only 70. My dad died when, when he was 40. So I started to say, you know, this, this I need to do more stuff I like before it's too late. <laughs> so I, I left the firm that I co-founded and just went out to scratch itches. So from 1992 to today, I've been what's might be called a serial entrepreneur. And I've had a lot of fun, did a, did a lot of different things, worked with some really great people. I met you along the way and then Russ Mason and all, all that. Uh, and I've had, like, like any other serial entrepreneur, I've had few successes, mostly failures. But thank goodness the few successes paid paid enough to to you know make us fairly comfortable. Yeah. So that's that's how I ended up where I am today. So I, I I've I've done a litany of different things, and I'll tell you some of my mistakes. But I, I, the, the 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 successes have been one of the big successes was I I worked for a fund of fund of hedge funds, and brought in 
the, the hedge fund industry pays so well, it's crazy. But I brought in enough huge, business. Huge fees, you know, they, they roll it off like it's nothing, two and 20, you know, three exactly. and 30. Yeah. I mean, 3% yeah. of profit and then 30% of the profits, et cetera. Well, the, the, the going thing then, I don't know what it is now, but so it was definitely what you kill, but it was 25% of what you kill, which was a big piece of, of the um, profit. Yeah. So, so that that was one big success, and then I developed an attribution system that had a fair amount of success. And I ended up selling it to Investment in Marietta, Georgia. So, a few of those, and then in between have been. So, this thing that I'm doing right now with target date funds, it's 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 not selling very well, and it's not selling because the, the guys who are taking the risk are winning the game. So, the the the, the performance race has definitely been won by imprudent target date funds. And the more imprudent, the higher the returns, and, and the more successful the, the targeted fund has been. So I'm, I'm waiting for that correction to, to, to prove up my, my design. Well, it is all timing, isn't it? I mean, you, yeah. you have to, I mean, I do some uh, trading of futures. A futures yeah. is a real whipsaw. Most people, I'd, I dare say, could never do the crazy stuff I do. But well, I'm doing I crazy stuff it. for my account that I would not do for clients. Just, yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah, and yet the, the education from it and the profits from it are substantial. The risk is quite high. They're the great unknowns, but, you know, partly because of following people like you and Michael Cabell and looking at charts. and all, I see amazing, fascinating things with the VIX, the volatility index. Sure. I just said, you know, I called it to my wife the other day. The VIX shot way up. Like, I don't know, it's almost 10 points up, I think, at one point. I thought, okay. what's going on? What's, you know, what's the news? But, yeah. but you know, from uh, as an insider on this, you don't react to that. You ask what's going on because it creates a new opportunity. Exactly. Somebody's, somebody's freaking out. It's probably not so. So keep your powder dry and see what's going on, see how you can use that opportunity. Well, I'll share with you what I, I say in the, the introduction to the book. When someone tells you it's different this time, they are usually wrong. But let me, let me throw these out to you and see, see if it's different or not. There's five things I think that are different and scary right now. Interest rates have never been lower. That's a fact. This is an undeniable fact. The corollary to that is bond duration has never been higher. And he's talking about you know the, the portfolio of bonds. This is arguably true, but I, I believe stock prices have never ever been higher. There's a lot of measures of that PE ratio. Warren Buffett has his, but all of them are saying highest ever. Most people, by the way, I think we're being gaslighted by the industry, but that's, that's nothing new. But most of the gaslighting says, well, of course they're higher. Interest rates are phenomenally low. That's explaining one problem with another. Interest rates are being manipulated and they're crazy low. It's just not, it's just not right. It's wacky. So that's the second one. Third one is, is definitely true. We have never, ever printed as much money as we've printed. In the last two years, I don't think many people know this. I was shocked at seeing this myself. M1 Money Supply, which is the first one I found, was $4 million at the end of 2019. 
is 20, I'm sorry, uh, 4 trillion, is $20 trillion today. The money supply is quintupled. The fourth thing that I think is really different that we see every day on the news, the wealth divide has never been wider and the social unrest has never been more visible. Seattle, Portland, Chicago. And then the fifth one is the one I started with. We have never, ever had so many people, 78 million people, all simultaneously in this risk zone. So if none of those worry you, or the, the five of them collectively don't worry you, God bless you. Well, I think you're, in my observation and opinion, your number two and number three go together. Why is the stock market going up? Because there's so much cash into it. You can see yeah. it in the volume. I mean, it really is a, you know, I, I have a, a strategy, which I'll share with you. I don't do every one, but I watch the spikes. Okay. You know, the, okay. game, the game, it's the GameStop strategy in reverse. Okay. I'm not looking for the winner. I'm looking for the winner so I can short it. Yeah. Okay. Because it's not going to last. Yeah. Somebody's it's... out there bidding it up. It's the casino and the opportunity and what, and it's very, it, this, this is like a private conversation we're having here, but this is good. <laughs> yeah, okay. What happens, what happens in the option pricing is the option goes way up because the yeah. valuation of the underlying the risk is way up. High, yeah. yeah. The correlation to the option value is excessively high and opportunistic to sell the option. The stock is invariably going to come back down. Mm -hmm. So you're looking at a 30, 40% disparity over a 30 day option, let's say. Yeah, that's pretty, quick. pretty good. Yeah. You have yeah. very little risk because that stock is coming down. I, I have a longer term scenario to share with you just to see, try this on. Your, your, your strategy, I think, is short term. What I'm, I'm trying to warn people is this. So with all that money coming in, $15 trillion, much of the conversation is about inflation. And of course, we're being gaslighted again and being told that it's transitory. Can't imagine how all that money is, is just not going to cause inflation. And, and people who try to tell us it's going to be okay say, so velocity is low, which basically means that money's just sitting in vaults going nowhere. So why was it issued? In fact, we, we know there was helicopter money dropped for COVID. So, so that's not sitting in the vault. So I, I don't think it's transitory and, and there, there are other people uh, agreeing, but frankly, most of what I'm reading says, don't worry, it's going to be fine. It's just, it's going, it's going to go away. You know, the, the uh, $20 a pound you're paying for bread now, it's going to, it's going to stop. <laughs> it's not going to stop. Well, well, the inflation, you know, the, if the inflation goes to hyperinflation, the extreme example, which is a real example, is Germany in the late 20s, 1920. Yeah. Yeah. yeah five million. Argentina. Uh, yeah. Five million marks to buy in a barrel, wheelbarrow filled with money to buy a loaf of bread. That's hyperinflation. And this happened in Argentina and Venezuela. So it's, it's not, you don't have to go back to the 20s to, to see a, a recent uh, thing. So what seriously has to happen then is people won't buy government bonds at 1% when inflation is 20%. They just won't clear the market. And what's going on right now, by the way, is, is new issue treasuries are not clearing the market. The Federal Reserve is buying them. 
So we're already in that situation. But I don't. I don't. There's got to be a limit to what the the, the way money is being, is being printed now is is the Treasury issues money. No, nobody's buying those bonds, so the Federal Reserve buys them. And that uh, game, I don't know the limit, but it's got to have some sort of limit. So interest rates will be driven up. The Fed will not be able to do anything about it. The service on our debt now, which is really most of our, a big portion of what we use taxes for is to, to pay the debt. The interest on that will go up. The argument that stock prices deserve to be high because interest rates are low goes away. So now people who are, you know, doing the job of figuring out fair values on stocks, they're gonna be discounting the, the future earnings at a much higher rate. So you get the domino effect, the spillover that I, I think, so that's that's my scenario, but there's other scenarios that, that say, China's gonna figure out a way to get us broke no matter what. <laughs> and no, maybe, maybe they cause COVID to make the rest of the world go bankrupt, spending tons of money on COVID relief. So there's the other scenarios out there, but none of them are pretty. I don't think just, the, uh, the, the gaslighting that goes on all the time is basically Wall Street trying to keep people in the game. And I think the game's... Yeah, the, the, yeah. yeah well, I, 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 you know, it certainly seems to be so. I mean, we, the, the, uh, the, with the changes that you mentioned before, social changes and unrest and so forth in your list of five, those are new in the United yeah. States and they add yeah, I think they're never before. Yeah. They add in a whole other dimension to the to the calculus of what's happening with the economy. And the to your to your point about the observation, your your observation or somebody else's good observation might not be a hundred percent correct, but these observations are getting to the point, in my opinion, where if they're ten or fifteen percent correct, wildly risky. Yeah. It just it's I can't imagine that we won't have some major correction sometime in this decade. And then other people who have sort of come to the same conclusion generally say, but it'll be over quick. I don't see how it can be over quick. So that, that's again, coming back to my concerns for my fellow boomers. You know, young people are resilient. They'll, they'll figure out how to how to survive and get through all this, but I just think things are, are very scary right now. But what do what is your suggestion then to two boomers who you know have done okay and they're you know they they followed the the methodology and they're doing okay they they own their home let's say no mortgage et cetera do you, I mean you, I I think to your point about the gaslighting I'm always interested particularly looking at the futures how I see these ads buy silver buy gold at the time yeah. when silver and gold are in decline in fact in the future right you know, yes. And, and, and everybody say, oh, they're going up. And I look at the, at the, you know, if you were to drive a car on a hill that looked like these charts, you would crash your car, you know? Yeah. So the correlations that everybody assumes are normal, those are being gaslighted too. Yeah. You know, the assumption that it's, it's like it used to be, it's not. So we've done at least three of the baby boomer shows on this. So when my, my advice is this to maybe everybody, especially the baby boomers. Number one, look, look at your asset allocation. It's probably 60, 40 or something close to that. And if it is, have a serious conversation with your advisor and, and maybe tell him to watch some of our shows <laughs> and ready to take a call if he wants to talk. But the move to safety 
normally would be cash. But we've been saying cash could be trash. So if we have the serious inflation and maybe even hyperinflation, you're you're you will probably have time to get out of the way. But you should be thinking about where where you're going to move that cash to because it's this you know the 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 phrase that was used in, with Venezuela is billionaires became penniless. So those pieces of paper just became pieces of paper. So what do you do? Well, I think cryptocurrencies exist today and are popular today for people who are, are saying exactly that. They're saying, you know, this fiat money thing, it only works. You know, when we went off the gold standard, they changed the the the, 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 the printing on the dollar bill from redeemable and, and gold or silver or whatever to in God we trust. Now, the atheists probably, <laughs> they don't want to hold a paper that says that. But but the fact is we're, we are very much reliant on when we take that piece of paper into a store, that wherever we're buying, the person on the other side is going to take that piece of paper. So cryptocurrencies are, are an answer. The traditional answer is precious metals, and especially gold. So when you're hearing all those things, people are, are certainly being opportunistic and trying to sell you something. But that's 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 one way to go. The other ways, you know, protecting against hyperinflation are, are commodities. People got to eat farmland. Somebody's got to grow the stuff we eat. Real estate is has a history of defending. So don't sell your house. Hold on to that. So what we're really saying is to take that cash and start to think about putting it someplace where. You know, you might be able to use it. Reverse mortgages. I know a lot of people think that they're hoodoo, but I'm, 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 I actually think not. I think that's that's a nice, reassuring part of financial planning. You know, during your your retirement years. So there are things you can and should do. And cash, cash is uh, oh tips for sure. Treasury inflation protected securities. So there's a whole litany well, of things that. You're, 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 what, everything you're talking about is is under let's say. Well, not everything you're talking about, but the reverse mortgage and the tips, they're not they're not big money makers. They're they're storage of value. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Right. I'm just saying so we've got yeah. you got two two things going on. We've got the medium of exchange, which is right. the dollar, which we've all gotten right. used to. Like, you know, I mean, anytime you try to do a, a larger scale transaction as an American, you realize that the rest of the world is much more used to barter and actual value. Uh, yeah. than we are we have no idea what things are worth in this country so yeah. so we're so that would you know if i were rewriting your whole script i would put that at the top but what you're right. talking about is you don't understand value and that's what you what we need to begin to really understand right so that means it's the definition of money is is a store of value and a means of exchange and if we get hyperinflation that goes away and that that's where the all these other things sort of come in. Now, gold is not a convenient means of exchange, <laughs> but it does satisfy the the criterion of being a store of value. At least historically, it has. Right, right. So this, you know, uh, protecting yourself in the throes of these threats is not easy. And I will share with you something you alluded to before. I. I I, I share a lot of notes with this professor here, and, and, and I think you might have met him. But anyway, I won't, I don't want to say his name. But we we've both decided that we're going to get out of the way, and we've done most of the things I just told you. And 
you actually lost money. <laughs> so the, the cost of insurance isn't just the opportunity cost to do some of this stuff. It's, it's actually been real losses. My wife beats me up all the time for that. So we put some of her money into traditional stuff and she's cleaning my clock. She's, she's won the race big time. But you have, do, isn't there the possibility too of disinflation, which is, uh, yeah, or, sorry, def, deflation, uh, yes. which is, is, which is a, you know, nobody wants to talk about that. I've raised that with people that know what it is and they go, oh, no, 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 no. And, <laughs> and then yeah. you know, that's when things are really out of whack and mm -hmm. you've got the combination of lots of money, but nothing to buy. To the um, deflationary forces are definitely in place. No, the the cheapness of technology is making things cheaper and cheaper, which is great, and other other factors. But on the offside of that, quad quintupling quintupling of the money supply. I mean, if you look at the scales, deflation's over here. Then you start helicopter money, 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 money. <laughs> all of a sudden, I, I think the dominant force is all this money. So I, I know deflationary forces might uh, delay it. There certainly has been, you know, the lack of velocity is, I'm really gonna go way off on a tangent here, but we have had inflation, but it's not been in, in commodity prices. It's been in stock and bond prices. So the measuring stick that we've used to say no inflation is, is not picking up where the real inflation has been. So right. if, if you're- yeah, that goes to what what people who study this stuff, Nuriel Rubini and Nassim yeah. Taleb, and this is what they talk about. They get really into it, and and they understand it far better because in, in Nuriel's case, or I, I think I think both of them at some point traded options. I mean, the yeah. options pricing and all that is a mirror of everything you're talking about. Yeah, it's well, option, it. options are, are a great way to make money and they're leveraged and they're fast. I'm, I'm not sure many people are going to listen to this to have the the skill to, 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 to do the options properly. I, I will say this, there's, I want to do a commercial for an instrument, but I'll, I'll just say there's, there, there's a exchange traded fund that lets you make a bet against the market with no expiration date. Wow. So if you're, I'll tell you off screen sometime what it is, but um, you, you should look at it. You know, I have to, ch I have to chime in here. I had it years ago. This had been like, I guess, 2008 or whatever. I taught, I called a good friend of mine and I was really fooling around, but I had my serious voice on and I said, Richard, <laughs> I've just put together a fund and what we're going to do is we're gonna buy coffee futures and short Starbucks. He said, what's the minimum? I said, <laughs> I'm totally kidding. There you go, yeah. No, that, that, I, I, that, you remind me of a fund and that, that I never did get back to a point I wanted to make. In the target date fund space, the design that I told you fund companies uh, came up with because they want profit has been justified by these bogus objectives. And the bogus objectives are these. One, three, place pay. So they, they, they say, we designed these glide paths, so they're going to replace your pay. Now, this is a one-size-fits-all vehicle. <laughs> Keep that in mind. And second, they say we're going to manage longevity risk. 
So if you stay in the plan, we're, we're, you're 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 going to be able to you no know, not outlive your money. The only only way to achieve those objectives is to save enough. Investing is not going to bail you out. It's just not going to happen. So these are just bogus objectives. Justify why the glide path is is wrong. <laughs> and that's just the way the industry is right now. So it's 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 a crazy time. So we have a situation down here in South Florida where I am where there's a lot of money coming in. There's a lot of money here. Unlike other places, there really is a lot of money here. I mean, it's here. It's in the banks. Other places have wealthy people who live there. This has both. We have wealthy people who live here and hyper wealthy people who come through here. I mean, hyper trillionaires, I think. Period. Somebody named Donald is there too. <laughs> he's, he's not hurting. There are other people that are better off than he is down here. Yeah. Okay. And, and I, there's another there's another problem with that is that when you live in a place like that you tend to think that maybe you're like that too and you can do what they do and and that's subjectively and objectively wrong but but we also have the benefit of or the mixed benefit of people moving down here the economy is going to be strong how much of this is regional that some regions are going to fare better than others in the country obviously places with low industry like Delaware, shall we say, and West yeah. Virginia are, are going to get hurt fastest. Probably. And, and just in terms of one of the assets that should defend against inflation is, is real estate. So that, I would gather that most of those people that you're talking about own their homes and own, own resorts, <laughs> own boats and own all sorts of things that that they can trade with each other with, if nothing else. So I, I think they, yeah, they, they, they sort of have a built-in kind of defense system that just is a, a matter of having so much wealth. But I, I, yeah. I, do, like, I do like the saying that in, in the case of Argentina and Venezuela, bil billionaires became penniless. So you, it's, it's I'm, I'm saying maybe a little differently. A lot of the wealth that wealthy people have is not in dollars. So. Those paper dollars will become worthless, but they'll they'll have assets that are worth something. So they, they should be okay. How do you I'm, not think, worried, I'm not worried about do you it. Think that, do you think that barter is going to become something that people turn to? Or do you think they were all so focused on the method of paying taxes and so forth? I've got a, a sidebar to this. I have to tell you, I have a, another guest who's coming out. We're going to be talking about silver, using silver okay. as an exchange. And silver yeah. is interesting. And their argument is... You, you, I mean, it's it, it's done a ton of work on this. I've known him almost as long as I've known you, this gentleman. He's he's saying effectively silver is not part of the financial system, so you're not subject to the same constraints, and I've heard the that value too. Yeah. is retained. Yeah. So if you're keeping a hundred percent of what you are transacting with, you're ahead, but there are yeah, other benefits as well. Yeah, I'm sure he's going to say this, but silver has industrial applications too, and 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 gold as well, but probably more so silver than gold. Right. So yeah, I, I, you know, just the 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 other one is rare earths, just for sake of argument that you know should should probably hold up through through tough times. And I keep coming back to the cryptos. I I, I just don't. We'll, we'll see how they all work. Some people say that they're going to go to zero, so the 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 ultimate value of the cryptos has to be zero. 
and, and I, I come, keep coming back to this 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 notion of trust. I mean, the, the fiat system only works because of trust. Who knows? Maybe it's maybe people. Too, have... You know, not to go too too far into the crypto space, but the if you look at this, the original Satoshi paper. On, yeah, uh, I didn't. I've heard about it, but yeah. Yeah. And you and, and you you look at what's happened now. It's advanced from what he was originally talking about. But the, uh -huh. the essential value of a crypto is dependent on it being limited in number. Right. Which it's got, it's, it's got a limit. That's right. Yeah. You know, puts it against the dollar and going off the gold standard. That was the that was the mistake for the long term. Obviously. Right. Yeah. So that gold standard yeah. thing was funny. I don't. I, 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 my recollection is something like this. Correct me if I'm wrong, but. France said, we got all these dollars. We would like our gold, please. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's what happened. And Nixon said, oh, now what are we going to do? Yeah. So it was a response to France again. We've got a. I, I think so. Yeah. 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 I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Not at all. Not at all. Well, tell me, you know, I, I'm curious about all the things that you've seen. And, and I have a, I have a pet theory about people that, come out on top in terms of their attitude, which I always consider you doing. What's your biggest disappointment in your career? Was there something that sparked this? I mean, you talked about your parents and getting kind of a, a whack yeah. across the head, it sounded like from that. Was there something else that kind of fired you up to be what, what who you become in this whole thing? You're very open and specific yeah. about what you recommend. Well, I've had one and a half disappointments. I'll tell you about the, the one first. And I think you were with IMI when I was uh, pitching this idea, and it was called Portfolio Opportunity Distributions, uh, PODs, P-O-D-S. And so I grew up in the performance evaluation industry, A.G. Becker, and was very much in tune with the problems with peer groups. And I'll just say this, peer groups are terrible barometers of success or failure for a whole variety of reasons. Uh, but the one that's typically cited is called composition bias. And what that means is when, when you're compared to a peer, somebody, the you know, performance evaluation firm has got to identify who your peers are. And if it's a Callan peer group, I'll even tell you the truth. So I, I spoke to a reporter years and years ago, and Pensions and Investments wrote this up. Just for everybody so, to know, Callan is a very highly respected, very valuable fund. Right. So I, I said that Barry Burr was a reporter for Pensions and Investments. And I said, Barry, take, you know, you guys feature you know, some uh, mutual funds on your uh, reports. Take your three favorites and go and get their performance rankings on these highly regarded peer groups. Callan, Wilshire, Russell, and he did that. And they were all three different for all three mutual funds. Even to the extent where sometimes the fund was well above median on one universe and well below median on, on a on very highly respected universe. So you cannot rely on peer groups. You just can't. You know, you make it more serious. Wealthy people spend a lot of money on hedge funds. And hedge fund peer groups are absolutely silly. They are just silly. And the proof of that one is that researchers early on, Henry Cat did, a, Professor Cat, okay, calculated the correlations between the hedge funds. So let's say you had the hedge fund group long short. 
And so he's calculated the correlation between those and it was close to zero. Now, what does that tell you? It says there's, you pick one hedge fund in, in that group and it's not like any of the other hedge funds. They're all different one to the other. So if you get a, a good uh, number in your peer group, it's not because you're better, it's because you're different. And whatever it is you're doing just happened to work for that time period. But so you're paying two and 20, a lot of money for what is probably not skill. And I'll even go a step further. I can almost for free manufacture the very popular quantitative hedge fund strategy. And here's what I, what I would do. I would go long a value exchange traded fund and I would short a growth exchange traded fund and voila, <laughs> I've got what almost all quantitative investors do, long value, short growth. And I can do that for free. And right. I'd be happy to take two and 20 for that. Thank you. Right, 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 right. Well, but you're not, and you're not delivering as much to the client too, but that's not, you know, it goes back to the very first point you made. Well, no, the, you're making yeah. the money. So what do you do instead? Because you can't trust the peer groups, even though that's what everybody's doing, right? Everybody's still doing this. I developed a technology that said, let's, let's do what the classical statistics book says you should do. So if you open up to the hypothesis testing chapter on, on statistics and your testing hypothesis performance is good. So the, the book says basically what you want to do is get a sample and a sample is a peer group. But I've just told you that, and what the book says too, is that you want, to, you want to do as many samples as you can because one sample might give you a false reading. There's this concept called perfect information. And if you could somehow get your head around all of the possible outcomes, that's perfect information. So now I'm going to come to the punchline. I wrote a simulator. And it's a portfolio simulator. It can do hedge funds. It can do long, and it, it creates all the portfolios the manager might have held. And that becomes the substitute for the peer group. And I spoke about this at IMI and other places. And I, I actually have testimonials from highly regarded people: Roger Ibbotson, uh, Dr. Frank Sertino, Larry Siegel. They all said this is a fantastic idea. It didn't sell. It did not sell. It doesn't that have the is, thrill. You don't have the sizzle. I don't have the marketing skill. That's right. Well, yeah, you don't I, have I, the, you know, that's, it just, but, but it, you know, I, that's why we're talking because we, we, we talked about this and I was listening to everybody else. And I, what you, what you were saying made sense. What they were saying sounded like what the last guy said. Yeah. And, and nobody was getting ahead. And they're all fighting for these. This is my big observation about institutional investing is that they're all fighting for 6%. And here I am trading futures and I'm going, well, even, even our friend that we mentioned earlier before we started, you know, he's talking about investing in timber. You had a 30, uh -huh. 40% bump in a year. You know, you, you, you try these things, yeah. you know, because at that time, timber was, was going up. This is many years ago now, but I sure. thought, yeah. That's right. You do that because yeah. if you get an extra couple of points, now you're at 11%. There you go. So I, I, I'm going to quote somebody here that your listeners might know. You probably do. His name was Doug Love. Pretty, pretty uh, highly regarded guy. 
And I was at uh, one of his presentations once, and you know, right in the middle of his presentation, he stares at the ceiling, and it's like he just became enchanted. And he goes, you know, what works doesn't sell. What sells doesn't work. I go, he's so right on. You know, and sales is everything. So my my half a disappointment is this target date fund stuff, but it's not over yet. So I haven't given up on this yet. But the portfolio well, opportunity distribution. I mean, I have you back uh, because I, we got obviously we, this is the longest interview I've had so far, and I yeah, thank you. I see we're going over, but yeah. that's that's fine. So I so you know the name of the show. You know what I'm doing. We know about your parents and your wake up call, your disappointment with the industry of target date funds with what works doesn't sell. Ron, what's the point? I'm having a great time. <laughs> you know, if, if, I, if I wasn't having fun, what would be the point? So we, we had three episodes of the uh, Baby Boomer Investing Show on happiness and retirement. And uh, if I wanted to keep this summarize all three of them and i think this is true for anybody in life especially for for retired people it's health wealth and purpose now the wealth part of that is not true for about 70 percent of baby boomers. this will shock you 70 percent of our 78 million people 55 million people has saved less than three hundred thousand dollars so that wealth part is, is off the table, but the health part isn't. And then thank goodness uh, we've got Medicare and other things to, to help those people. So they they should probably be okay. And purpose is, is I think, is so critical. I mean, even even people without much money can, can have a purpose and, and, and be happy. So the, the three are interrelated. Certainly if you're wealthy, you can pay more for your health care and probably enjoy the best health care ever. And, but the purpose part of that is 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 is, is you. It's, it's basically you. When one of our guests, uh, Michael Drack, wrote wrote a book called Retirement Heaven or Hell, and he tells a story about how he was forced into retirement. He was mad as hell. <laughs> you know, he was forced that way, and he couldn't get a job. So he decided to hang out at the beach and watch TV because, hey, that's what you do in retirement. He said, I was really, really sad. I was in hell. <laughs> and then it finally dawned on me, I need to do something. <laughs> so and when this, his moral was this. His mother had been retired for a number of years, and that's what she did. And she was very happy. So purpose is a very individual thing. And I, 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 I tried golf. My wife is a terrific golfer. But I, I think I soured on golf because I was never going to get as good as her. <laughs> This we're wasn't going to happen. Yeah, so we're, we're not going to look for you at any tournaments anytime soon. No, no, I don't think so. <laughs> so I enjoy well, talking to you and doing this kind of stuff. Yeah. This, is, this, this is my so fun. I'm so happy. Yeah, this is a great conversation. I appreciate it. We've, I've been talking with Ron Sears. Among other things, he is the CIO of GlidePath Wealth Management, president of Age Sage Robo, the co-host of the Baby Boomer Investing Show, and perhaps most availably to you right now, he is the author of the Baby Boomer Investing for Perilous Times. Do I have the right title? Close. It's Baby Boomer Investing in the Perilous Decade of the 2020s. 
But now that you said that title, this that's probably a better title to <laughs> have used that. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. And it was a great conversation. Thank you so much, Ron. Thanks, Rob. I really appreciate it. Thanks. You've been listening to What's the Point? This podcast is hosted by Robert Bailey and produced by Skis It's McGee. The show is live from Palm Beach, where we highlight advanced strategies with living and extended benefits for CFOs, founders, and entrepreneurs. Visit upradio.live to learn more and to register for guest offerings. Whatever you do, make it great. But for now, the microphone is off. Hooray! Let the show begin.